Good morning and welcome to a unique episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm your editor Bryce, but today you're going to be listening to Abby and Erica conduct an interview with a guy that was not only able to solve the case we talked about last week, but wrote a book about his process. So pour yourselves a strong cup of fire department coffee, and let's dive in. As we had mentioned, we are going to have Joe LaPello, the great nephew of the man in our story. His name was Carmine. So we're going to have his great nephew, Joe, on for an interview. So Joe, if you want to say hi. Hello, everyone. My name is Joe LaPello. I reside in Toronto, Canada. I'm the great um, nephew of the victim in this uh, true crime murder mystery, uh, Carmine LaPello. He was a taxi driver. Back in 1917, when the murder occurred. Awesome. So Joe has also written a book regarding Carmine's murder and basically the whole process that he went through in order to solve his great uncle's murder. So this book is called Murder Lost to Time, the true story of one of Canada's oldest unsolved murders. And Joe, can you tell people where that book would be available if they would like to purchase that in order to read it further? All they have to do is go to Amazon.com and punch in the title, Murder Lost to Time. It's available in paperback and a Kindle. Perfect. So if you guys want to check that book out, I did have the pleasure of reading the book. And Joe does a wonderful job of going, like I said, in complete detail of from day one of even learning about his uncle's murder and all the way until after, until he solves the murder. He's got a lot of great information, and it's really cool to be able to actually see the entire process pan out. The first question that I have for you, Joe, is do you feel like you had a unique perspective to solve this case since it was almost 100 years later that you started diving into it? Well, uh, in a way I did because I had the, um, the advantage of oversight by putting all the pieces together when I gathered it, uh, gathered all the information and the, the picture became very clear of what happened here. Not exactly um, who did it, because the man and the woman from the taxi stand still make, uh, remained mysterious, to, to my, even to myself, of even all the information I had gathered. So yes, my, my perspective was I had the advantage of, like I said, having an overview of it. Yeah, and I wanted to make a, a comment while I was reading your book, you mentioned a lot of people in your book. You found out about a lot of different people. One thing that I really liked is that I didn't feel like you immediately targeted on one person. You had all these people that you were looking at and you were like, I'm going to cross them off my list. But you didn't immediately be like, I think it was this person. How do I make this fit this person? Yeah, no, that's the mistake I didn't want to make. I didn't want to um, do my research with a preconceived idea of what, who I thought was responsible for it. My, uh, my strategy in tackling uh, this mystery was to gather and accumulate as much information as I can and almost put it on a, a mental uh, chalkboard. And I, what I did was I allowed the evidence to steer me to, uh, to where I eventually got, got to in solving the crime. I followed the evidence. 
So I and and I tried to make myself as emotionally detached from this as I could too. I didn't want to uh, let my emotions uh, get in the way of my reasoning. So that's the that's that's the, the strategy I used. I didn't focus. You're absolutely right, Eric. I didn't focus on one of the first name I came across and said, yes, that's him. I really enjoy that because Eric and I, we obviously cover a lot of cases, but one of the things that we specifically look at a lot are wrongful convictions. And I think that happens a lot when police just have somebody who it seems a little suspicious and then they zero in on that person and don't explore other avenues. So I love that you like came at it from in my opinion, the correct perspective to make sure you were like keeping an open mind and looking through all the evidence. Yeah, um, like I said, uh, Abby, I just I let I tried to let reason be my guide here, not emotion or impulse or uh, seizing on something that would be uh, easy to uh, to say. Well, you know, this person, I think this person did it. He fits the profile. I tried to. Uh, gather as much information to sum- to support what I was saying in the book of, of who I thought did it. Of course, with the passing of time and everything, it was like 93 years after it happened that I started working on it. It was, uh, yeah, that I thought that was the best way to go because I, there was nobody I could talk to about it. But from that time, they, they, they were all gone. You know, they had all passed away. So all I had left was to uh, was the evidence. And I think that that's a beautiful way to approach any of these cases that we cover. It's absolutely the, I think the way that you're so, you should go. I was going to ask you, what made you originally interested in solving the case? Well, the first thing I, it sparked my curiosity at a very young age. When I, when I found out about this, I was only about 10 years old and, uh, what made me want to solve it was, uh, well, uh, you know, if, if you believe there's no such thing as a perfect crime, well, then I kept saying to myself that although this crime wasn't solved at the time, there had to be something there, something that pointed in the direction of who was responsible. There had to be a connection, you know, uh, between all these people that I found out during my research. And uh, it, it, it was hard for me to believe that this was the one perfect crime that had been committed, you know, that somewhere there, you know, there had to be something that was overlooked or missed or wasn't interpreted uh, properly by the people of the the police that were working on it at the time. And uh, that's what kept my interest up in it. And I, I never, I never really gave up hope as as discouraging it as it became uh, doing the research. It was over three years of research gathering information from different sources. Uh, I uh, I never lost hope, but it became very discouraging at times. Yeah, when I was reading your book and, list- er, and seeing the way that you had gone through solving it and trying to find answers, there were definitely a couple points where I was like, right now, you would just hit a dead end and it would be so easy to give up on it at this point. But you never did. You, you kept going and you kept looking into the case. Uh, well, I... Uh, that happened a few times, Abby, that I, I hit a dead end and it became discouraging. But I, I said, well, you just can't give up because all it means is that you have to find another avenue of uh, research here and you haven't found it. So 
as discouraging as it became, I, I never gave up. I just said, well, take it as far as you can. Everybody has their limitations, what they can do. I'm, I'm going to go as far as I can, put my best effort in, and hopefully I'll be successful. Or I thought to myself, maybe the research, maybe somebody else would pick it up later on, you know, maybe even after I'm gone and be able to uh, bring it to some sort of a conclusion. But because, see, I'd never done anything like this before. So once I, I gathered all the newspaper articles, I had to start searching the archives. I, I had never done any research like that in you know at the archives of Ontario and Canada, making um, sending away through the Freedom of Information Act to get police reports or prison records. So, but I, I never lost heart. I just, you know, realized, and there were a lot of walls I hit during the, the investigation. But I just saw it as another hurdle to be uh, <coughs> to be overcome. That's all. Yeah, like I said, I think that that was a great way to approach it. I think you had an interesting perspective coming at it 93 years later, when all you were presented with was evidence and not a lot of speculation. Well, okay. I, I mean, I, that has to do with a, a great deal to do with the way I think and the way I approach life, actually. <laughs> I have a tendency to disregard things that haven't been proven or that, that there's no evidence to support uh, it being true. So I just more or less applied that to this case. One of the things that I was going to ask you, but I think before I asked the question, I thought that maybe you could explain to the listeners just a little bit about when you met Joseph Pill. That uh, that was in 19, that was 1974 I met Joseph Pill at a billiard room in downtown Toronto. I, I had gone down there with a friend of mine. We were actually going to go out drinking that night to a couple of bars. You know, I was only 20 years old at the time and we got downtown pretty pretty early. And we had some time to kill, and he suggested going to a billiard room, which was right where a couple of the bars we were going to go to were. I said, sure, why not? We started playing pool. We were maybe playing 30, 45 minutes, and um, an elderly gentleman walked in. I could see the entrance of the billiard room from where we were playing. Slowly but surely, he started to make his way over to the table. He kept looking at me, staring at me, and I could see it. It was obvious. My friend saw it, too. And I could see he was a little bit, well, maybe apprehensive uh, to say anything to me. I mean, I was this 20-year-old kid. And he was in his, uh, he was in his uh, later years. He might might have been close to 80 or something like that. He he came over and he asked me, uh, "Is your last name Lapello?" And I was a bit taken aback by that because I I didn't re- recollect ever meeting this man before. But I, you know, I said, yeah, it is. I says, uh, I'm sorry, but I, I don't, I don't think I know you. And he says, well, I, I knew your great uncle. Uh, well, Tony. He called him Tony because Carmine's middle name was Anthony, and he used the name uh, Tony, my great uncle. And um, that's how I met Joseph Phil. We had a talk in the billiard room. I didn't have the type of questions that he he, he probably would have been able to have helped me with. And, and, you know, get me a little, uh, make it easier for me to solve the case. But I hadn't done any research up until that point and wasn't really familiar with it. All I knew that Carmine was a taxi driver. He was murdered in 1917 and the case wasn't, wasn't ever solved. I, I didn't even see a, 
a newspaper article about it, you know. So. But that's how I met Joseph Pill, and I, I, he told me he had gone, that he lived in the area downtown there, and he frequented the billiard hall uh, quite a bit. I went down there a couple other times to uh, see if I could uh, meet up with him again, but I never did see him again. It was just that one meeting we had in 1974. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask you, do you feel like if you had not met Joseph, do you think you'd still have had the same desire to investigate the murder? Or do you think meeting Joseph kind of made it a little bit more real? Well, it was uh, Joseph Pill's reaction when he was talking about the murder. Uh, he was he was with Carmine that night when uh, he was one of the last uh, people to see him alive that night. So he had you know, and he was actually a very good friend of my great uncle's. You know, but uh, I, I, and that's a hard thing for me to say. You know, Abby, because I don't know if if I would have picked it up later. I mean, he had something to do with influencing me to to tackle it later on in my life. But he wasn't the sole cause for it. He, I would call him just a. You know, he certainly meeting him contributed to my. Uh, re-stirring my curiosity about it. I probably would have delved into it, too, uh, if I hadn't have met him, because the amount of information I really got from him uh, about the case wasn't that much. Of course, I didn't have the questions to ask him either at the time. But, yeah, yeah, I I probably would have gone into it, even if I hadn't have met Joseph Pills. Okay, yeah. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So while we're talking about Joseph Pill, one of the things I was going to ask you, did you ever question Joseph Pill's innocence? A lot of times we see that one of the last people to see somebody alive is a lot of times connected. So did you ever question whether or not Joseph knew what was going on or had even been a part of it? After I did my research, it became very clear to me that Joseph Pill knew what was going on and knew what was you know, Carmine was involved in. But at no time did I really consider him a suspect. His innocence is something I didn't question at all. Because when I spoke to him, I got a, a very honest, feeling of regret and sadness from him about losing his friend that way. I mean, I just don't think, you know, anybody could be that good of an actor. I mean, to fool me about that, I could honestly see that Joseph Pill, you know, he carried the sadness of what happened to Carmine around his whole life. It was genuine. So I really didn't consider him. I think... Uh, well, he received a threatening letter at his home telling him to stop trying to help the police or he would get the same thing as Carmine got. And his story did start to change. At first, he said he could identify this mysterious uh, woman from the taxi stand that had hired Carmine that night. And then after he got the threatening letter, his story started changing. 
he wasn't sure if he had seen her before. Maybe he was mistaken. He was obviously frightened. And I saw remorse in him, too, when I met him in 74, that perhaps, you know, at that point in his life, he just, you know, on, in the twilight of his life, he maybe had regrets about not speaking out. You know, I remember that vividly about him when I spoke to him. So, uh, no, I never considered him a suspect. He was a, he was genuinely my great uncle's friend. Yeah, I can see kind of your thought process there. Um, I When I read the book, I didn't question his innocence either. I was just curious if you had. I do agree that I, I can understand why he changed his story after receiving the threatening letter. I think it was uh, at that point he was probably like, well, they were able to murder Carmine. So if they're threatening the same thing against me, I I could see why he would be hesitant. Well, sure. He knows they'd go through with it. Mm -hmm. He understand, I I think, the the, uh, trouble Carmine had got himself into and the danger of the people he was dealing with. I think uh, Joseph Pill knew that at the time, you know, and... uh, it caused him, even though he might have regretted it later, to just not help as much as he could have. And that's actually a question that I had for you. Do you think that Carmine knew the dangers of the business that he was in? Yes, I do. And uh, the reason I say that is that he received a threatening letter from Montreal. It was actually sent to his estranged wife, threatening his life. And uh, the letter said you know, he had better stop talking to the police or or else, you know. Uh, now, the letter didn't say what he was talking to the police about. That, again, was a mystery I had to solve. And uh, w- one of the things that gave me a clue was that Carmine was a witness at an inquest uh, near the Humber Bay Area, which is also where the mur- his murder occurred a year later. Uh, at an inquest as to what was going on in some tea rooms there. I didn't know what tea rooms were. I later found out that they were speakeasies because in uh, 1916, Prohibition was passed in Ontario, Canada here. You couldn't uh, sell or consume any alcohol except what they called a cellar stock. If you kept it in your home, like if you made wine or something, but it, it had to be a very limited amount. You know, you couldn't start brewing it like uh, like a brewery did. You know, but Carmine Carmine knew he was uh, dealing with some dangerous people, and uh, he made a very horrible mistake, I think, um, and it cost him his life. Yeah, when, when that that night of uh, July the July the the twentieth, nineteen seventeen, when the man and woman came up to hire his taxi cab, um, Joseph Pill was sitting in. In with him in his car at the taxi stand, and they were arguing about because neither one of them wanted to take this couple out to that area, the Humber Bay area, which is uh, which is where the murder took place. Uh, so I, I I think he knew he was in some danger. Somebody had informed the people that killed him that he had been talking to the police again, and they decided to put an end to it. Put an end to him. So with Carmine knowing the dangers that he of the business that he was in and of being a police informant, do you think that he was aware or kind of had an idea of what his fate would be that night when he was debating if he should take the couple? Do you think he knew that there was the possibility if he took them, he could end up dead? 
I think that what alarmed him the most was going out to that area where the inquest had taken place in 1960, where he had testified. That's the thing that that made him not want to take this couple. But then after a while, uh, him and Joseph Pill uh, argued about who would take them, and he finally said, okay, I'll take them. And he, I guess he thought to himself, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, the woman, how dangerous can she be? And uh, the man is a little bit smaller than me, and, you know, maybe I can handle him if, so, if something took place. Or I, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you what he was thinking that night. I can only go by uh, the testimony uh, at, the in, uh, at the inquest of his death by the taxi drivers that were there. And I try to piece together, well, you know, I'm speculating on what he was thinking. He, he, he might have been a little, little bit alarmed, but uh, it couldn't have been that bad. He, he, he couldn't have thought of them as being that dangerous because uh, he, he ultimately agreed to take them. Yeah, and Joseph was the other one there. Um, and then there was another man, and uh, Stephen, maybe? Stephen Jeans. He was another taxi yes. driver. He had pulled up right at the time that Carmine, my great uncle, agreed to take this mysterious man and woman. Uh, to their destination out by the the Humber Bay area. And uh, Stephen Jeans actually offered to take them because I guess he sensed that neither Joseph Pill or my great-uncle wanted to drive them. And um, the man who was with this mysterious woman, uh, he waved Stephen Jeans off and pointed to my great-uncle's car. So that was one of the things that made me believe that um, their purpose for hiring him was to get him out in that secluded area out by the Humboldt, Humber Bay area to lure him out there. Because, I mean, they could have went with any other car. Why did they have to take his car? <laughs> they had to take his car because he was driving it. He was the target that night. You know. When I was reading your book, I did a lot of notes in the uh, margins and everything. One of the things I wrote next to that area where you were describing that they specifically wanted the green car with the white stripe i was like why that car specifically because <laughs> i felt like they were very specific it had to be that car um so i yeah i just thought that, that was a strange thing but it made more sense as the story went on and as i learned everything mm, well i mean um whoever told these people he got involved with uh, he didn't personally know them but uh you know they, they were told that, you know, he'll be driving the green car with the white stripe. Probably just driving a young guy, 20 years old. You know. And uh, so once they pulled up, even though they didn't personally know him, uh, they they know they knew what car to look for and, and that he would be in it. So uh, that, that's... And, and surprisingly enough, there was another uh, taxi driver who had a green car with, a, with the white stripe. He figures into this, too. And he was uh, mysteriously not working that night. So there could be no confusion. You know, Carmine was the only... Carmine and this other taxi driver had the only green car with the white stripe. All the other cars were a different color or didn't have the white stripe on. So there was no mistake. These people yeah. wanted, uh, you know, to, to get my my great uncle out there. But like I said, that secluded spot. And they did just that. Yeah, and the man that was driving the other one was Frank 
Lombardi. Is that how you say his last yes, name? Yes, Frank Lombardi, yeah. Okay. Do you want to speak briefly about who Frank is? Because he comes up a lot in our story. Yeah, he figures into it. Frank Lombardi, at a very early age, came to Canada, was educated in Canada, too. And uh, he lived in an area in Toronto known as the Ward. It was a very rough, rough area. It was a place where there were a lot of lodging houses there that uh, new immigrants to, uh, to Canada, that's where they ended up living. The accommodations were cheap, not very nice either. Uh, very, you know, very slum-like. You know, uh, <laughs> some of the places didn't, you know, they didn't even have indoor toilets. You know, they were run down and... Uh, it was a crime-ridden area, too. You could get anything you want down there. Uh, they had the illegal gambling. They had the, the drug business uh, was going down there. There was prostitution. There were murders that happened down there, too. And that's where Frank lived, in the ward. And uh, he was a taxi driver. And he was, he was somebody that was involved in some illegal activity. You know, not... not uh, real serious uh, at the time, but, you know, petty things, theft, and uh, I think he was uh, selling alcohol uh, after the, pro the prohibition came in in 1916. He was also shipping it, your bootleggers and stuff like that. Um, he was, you know, he was a bit of a shady character. He was a, he's a funny little guy, you know, he's a small guy in stature, physical stature, but, uh, he didn't back away from anybody. He really had uh, had a lot of uh, uh, fortitude, you know, uh, and pride. And but uh, he he and my great uncle, uh, previous to Carmine being murdered, about six months or five months before Carmine was murdered, uh, him and Frank Lombardi got into a, an argument. Frank. Frank Lombardi said at one of the inquests, the coroner's inquest into Carmine's death, that it was about a fair, a taxi fair. But I really didn't believe that. I didn't think uh, they would have the, the type of argument they had, and it would last so long. Because Frank said they were they were uh, weren't talking to each other for four months or something like that over this. But you know, Frank was lying about that because through some. Um, police court records, I had found that they had been arrested in 1916 and charged with illegal shipping of alcohol. And I think, well, uh, Frank uh, had been uh, arrested once. Carmine had been arrested twice. I believe it was on his second arrest. Uh, he would have been facing some time in jail, maybe six months or whatever. And uh, I think that's when he started cooperating with the police, and I think Frank Lombardi found out about it, and that's what they were arguing about. But my great uncle was, you know, he was. Uh, and Joseph Pill revealed to me that he was a he was a very, very likable person, but he was very stubborn, bullheaded. He had a temper on him. Uh, just one week prior to his murder, he had confronted uh, the man that was going out with his estranged wife, and. He, he, uh, he knocked him down to the ground. He just punched him and almost knocked him out. You know, uh, he was he was a hot-tempered uh, person, my great uncle. So, but but as far as Frank Lombardi goes, 
Yeah, he he figures into this into this whole mystery uh, quite a bit. He knows a lot more than he ever reveals at any of the inquests. And I think the crown attorney that would be like the the, uh, the prosecutor in the United States who was running the the coroner's inquest knew that Frank was concealing a lot uh, of, of what he knew, but. Unfortunately, he was able—he was unable to get it out of him on the witness stand. Yeah, it was. It, so, in my notes in chapter four, they call Frank Lombardi to the witness stand, and next to that, I wrote, "I don't trust Frank." So it was pretty early on that I was not trusting him either. But I—you did talk about it how you feel like uh, the person that was running the inquest and everything, most likely knew that Frank knew more than he was saying. Yeah, that, that was Crown Attorney Richard Halliburton Greer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was a very astute lawyer. He was, and, and he had, um, he, he was, he, he's somebody that had some insight and knew there was more to this than the, that one was coming out. And he actually, when he had Frank on the witness, well, well, well I'm, to set the stage, uh, when I first read the article about the inquest where Frank testified, one of the reporters said that uh, all the taxi drivers and all the witnesses were very eager to answer the questions and to be as helpful as possible, or something to that effect. But what I noticed about Frank Lombardi's testimony, because it's in quotes, as the questions were asked, the reporter put his answer in quotes. And his answers were very... Um, brief, short, um, and I got the impression from Frank Lombardi that uh, he was in an awful hurry to get the questioning over and get off the uh, witness stand, because the more questions he would answer, it would, it, or he would have to answer, the more it would reveal that he might know more than in truth what he's really saying about it. And Richard Halliburton Greer, that Crown Attorney, tried his best to prod or uh, get Frank to say more, but he just wouldn't. Frank, you know, he, well, you know, I mean, Frank might have been in, uh, scared of people too. You know, he was from that area. Uh, there was organized crime down there, so he had a reason for for not saying anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the same thing as where, I mean, kind of similar to when Joseph changed his story a little bit. It was all out of fear for their lives. So like like I said earlier, Joseph Pell got a letter right to his house telling him to stop helping, or he'd get the same. There was also a letter published August 2nd, I believe, 1917, in the newspaper of a threatening letter to the newspaper, mocking the police and telling them there was no use trying to find out the mysterious man and woman uh, case because they were just hick detectives, you know, bumpkins. And uh, and there was a threat uh, made there that, uh, you know, uh, one of his friend, one of Carmine's friends will get the same thing as Carmine got if, if he didn't, uh, you know, stop trying to help the police. You know, if he doesn't keep his mouth shut. And that was published in the paper. That letter was sent to the Globe and Mail newspaper. So, I mean, these people were very brazen. They were pretty bold, you know. And they knew making a threat would go a long way to silence everybody. And, and in fact, back then, back then, that's what it did. 
One of the things that I had written down as a question for you, and you've kind of been talking about it, so I'm going to ask it now. So you had mentioned that Carmine was a police informant, so they would have been aware kind of of the danger that he was in. Do you think that like at the time of his murder and the inquest and everything, do you think that police were also kind of aware of what had happened? Well, that's something that crossed my mind very early on. What I did know is, I think everybody knows it, that when the Ontario Temperance Act was passed, prohibition, half the police were trying to stop the bootleggers. The other half were working for them. And uh, I'm sure in your own country there, in Sh- I mean, just to take an example, like Chicago, there was 12,000, I think Al Capone had 12,000 speakeasies going in Chicago, and, you know, none of them were getting shut down. Well, they couldn't find 12,000 speakeasies. You know, they were getting protection from the police. The police were taking, you know, bribe money, and it was going on here too. So um, do I think... The police, that's what you're asking me, is if I think the police might have informed the Vegas that he's the one giving the information up. And that was, that could have been quite a possibility back then, that maybe Carmine had been uh, fingered by one of the police, one of the policemen working for the bootleggers, tell, you know, telling the bootleggers, this is the guy that's giving the information, that's why you're losing you know, uh, some of your stock, that's why you're getting raided or something like that. And that that could have been, but I couldn't prove it. I had no evidence to point me anywhere close to that. You know, even though I tried to find out, and I did find out the name of the police officers who uh, were working on Carmine's case, I couldn't find any uh, proof of corruption with them. So, uh, although I didn't disregard uh, that possibility, I, I didn't continue in that vein of investigation because there was nothing substantial to go on. There, there, was, there would be no way of me um, shoring it up with any uh, bits or scraps of evidence uh, that it would support that. Okay, yeah. So early on, I when I was doing my reading, I had wrote pretty quick on, is this a cop cover-up? Because I just thought it was so strange that they would have known, obviously, the business that he was in. And then, but then when he was murdered, they all kind of just turned a blind eye. But I, you did talk a lot about in the book, like you said, um, how some of the police were involved and knew what was going on and they were part of covering up the speakeasies. And then others kind of just, there were others that were trying to shut it down. Once again, I do appreciate that you didn't just immediately go straight to police cover up and call it good. You, you continued to research until you found actual evidence that led to who you um who did it yeah it it certainly crossed my mind but like i said i couldn't prove it so i wasn't going to uh i wasn't going to believe something that there wasn't a scrap of evidence to 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 substantiate so i shelved it you know i didn't bury it i shelved it because later on as i was investigating it it might have been pertinent to the investigation it might have uh played a part in further research that I found out, but it never did. And, and, and still could be true. It, just, it means, you know, all it means is that I never found the evidence to make the accusation. But it, it, it happened that way. And all the evidence that, that I gathered, I tried to paint a picture of what went on here. And I didn't, I didn't want to fabricate or make something up. So, yeah, I mean, they could have been involved, but 
I had to discount it because I had nothing to prove it. Well, that leads me to another question. Uh, and this isn't one that I had originally let you know that I was going to ask. So if you feel like you don't have an answer, then let me know. We don't have to have this in the podcast. But I was going to ask, how did you... So in your book, you had many different names. There were hundred. I feel like hundreds of people that you came across, especially with all the people living in the ward. And then you went through Ancestry.com and you had this person connected to that person. How did you keep track of all of those people? I bought a big map of, of Toronto and specifically of downtown Toronto, that area known as the ward. And uh, I was putting up uh, like uh, reference pins. Frank Lombardi lived here. The Colellos lived there. Uh, Carmine lived here. Joseph Pill lived very uh, close to him. And as I was uncovering these names, I was putting them on uh, on this map in the form of these pins, uh, different colored pins, uh, each one representing a different person. And, I mean, everybody that knew Carmine, that knew people that he knew, that were in the taxi business with him, they were all in a very, very small area of the city. And that's another thing that... Uh, made me curious. I mean, all of these people know each other. All of these people are in the same business, but nobody knows anything. It just didn't make sense to me. You know, I, I thought to myself uh, that at the time, had I have been around there, I probably would have been able to solve this, even though, you know, those three police forces couldn't. But as I looked at their investigation, uh, what became obvious to me was that, I mean, the, the, like that Inspector Boyd from the Ontario Provincial Police that was in charge of it, he was very mm -hmm. diligent in his making out his reports, writing down everything that people had said, but I don't think he really understood, you know, uh, he never really understood the overview of this. He didn't really get the whole picture, you know, uh, I mean... Uh, nowhere in his police report uh, is there any, there's no accusation, uh, there's nothing that says that, I mean, it's almost as if he went out there to do a job. Today we're going to investigate this person. We meet them, take a statement, write down what they say, and I, like to me, it was, he was more concerned with filling out a proper, indexed, detailed police report than actually sitting down and saying to himself, what's going on here? Uh, certain information that had come his way, he thought, you know, he was having a revelation, you know, some great investment work, where in fact he was being fed this information by the killers. Uh, the strange meeting with that uh, Canadian uh, Army private, Joseph, uh, or pardon me, Arthur Colin Kilner, on the train with the woman from Montreal. I mean, uh, she showed him a return ticket. He actually thought, that, and once uh, um, Inspector Boyd spoke to the private from the Army after he was poisoned, after having a drink with this woman on the train, I mean, the, the whole point of the meeting was to distract the police's attention from that area in downtown Toronto. And, and that's exactly what it did. It was like Inspector Boyd didn't have any insight here into what was going on. His report was very thorough, 
you know, all everybody he spoke to, uh, information he gathered. But I, I just I just don't think he had uh, the intuition here to understand, you know, that he was being played too. This information was coming to him uh, via the killers, even the murder scene, which I explain in the book was was staged. It was staged to support the theory that this was a crime of passion, that Carmine had somehow or another offended the woman from the taxi stand who had hired him, and the man got jealous. They had a fight, and uh, the man killed the woman. So they were looking for this mysterious man and woman, where, in fact, they weren't the killers at all. Their job was to lure Carmine out there, and then the killer would represent himself as another taxi fare going back to Toronto later at night. And, uh, but, but, but Inspector Boyd didn't, didn't under, I mean, he, he just couldn't see what was re- he couldn't see the whole picture. You know, his, to me, his goal was, was to hand in a thorough, uh, well-documented, uh, uh, police report to his superiors. Look, I investigated, this is all the information I gathered. And, uh, you know, to, to get good grades, you know, on, on his police report. But he, he, he couldn't see that, uh, that he was being led around by the, by the nose, by, especially by this woman, because I believe she's the one that planned all this. So, uh, I mean, I think somebody who was around back then, they could see through it, see through what was going on would understand that this was there was a lot of deceit and mis- misdirection here and it was all done by this woman to take them off the path i mean she she has a chance meeting on a train going to toronto from montreal with the 19 or 20 year old soldier in the canadian army she asked him to pick up her suitcase in downtown toronto naturally he asked why don't you pick it up right and uh, you know the, she explains to him that 9 days before this her and her husband were out in a taxi cab. The taxi, the taxi cab driver and her husband had a fight, and she doesn't know exactly what happened, but the next day the taxi driver was dead. Now, you've, you've got to ask yourself a question. This is nine days after the murder, nine days after the murder that everybody in Toronto was talking about. It's news right across Canada. The border's been alerted to be uh, to watch out for this mysterious man and woman, Right. Uh, there's three police forces uh, working on it, but she admits to this perfect stranger that she was the woman that everybody's looking for nine days after the murder. I mean, the whole thing is suspicious, but I think it, I think it went right past uh, Inspector Boyd, the, the police officer who was in charge. And, you know, she f- flashed a ticket to the uh, private there, a private kill there, that she was only going to be in Toronto a couple of days, and she was going back to Montreal where she lived. Well, I mean, why show them the return ticket? That's confirmation that, that yeah, I'm going back to Montreal. So what does uh, the inspector do? He gets leave for the private from the Army so he can go to Montreal and look for the woman. Well, she's anywhere but there. You know, she's sending you east. That She's probably west of Toronto, you know, but he couldn't see it. You know, but to, to me, it stood out. It was like so obvious what was going on and he had it in front of him too back in 1917 but he just wasn't you know wasn't able to interpret it does that answer your question 
It does, yeah. So it actually leads me into a couple other things. I, it, I, we do see that a lot in cases that we have covered and investigated where detectives' main goal is, you're right, to turn in a report. They don't look at each case individually necessarily. They're just trying to check all the boxes on this report. Whereas if they would think a little outside the box, look into some additional things, stop following a specific formula, they might be able to solve some of these other cases. Like even, uh, I I spoke briefly about the murder scene and the way Carmine's body was left. The amount of stab wounds, that was all all staged. That, That was to create the impression that the man who killed him was in a frenzy. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a rage, you know, a rage of violence, uncontrollable, white-hot hatred. I mean, you stab somebody 14 times all in the back, and, uh, and uh, I mean, the coroner said after the second stab wound, he was already dead. His lungs had filled up with blood, and he basically suffocated. You know, so what's the reason for the other 12 stab wounds? Uh, what's the reason to leave him... Uh, with his pants pulled down and his privates hanging out, that's that's like a state of disgrace to leave him in. That that's what a jealous husband would do. Somebody who is either offended or or done something wrong to his woman. That that was the simplest and easy, easiest motive, and that's the one the police seized on. And that meeting on the train with the, the the Canadian private was done after the police had gone down to an address in the ward where they were sent, I believe, from another taxi driver who knew what was going on down there but that didn't want to get involved. And uh, from, from uh, there was a phone call made to Montreal where the woman was hiding out. The man, once they, uh, on the morning of the murder, they caught a train up to North Bay. And that's about, oh, 250 miles north of Toronto and a uh, small town. And they were seen up there, and from there they separated. The woman went one way, the man came back to Toronto. I mean, Inspector Boyd was aware of the sighting of them up in North Bay. You know, uh, why didn't he do the research I did and find out, you know, that she could catch a train from there to Montreal? Because the next time she's seen is on the train from Montreal, meeting the, laying this phony story on uh on this poor army private, you know, and then she poisons him and mysteriously gets off the train and she's not seen again. So you keep talking about private author Colin Kilner and how he was poisoned. What I was going to ask you in regards to that is, do you think at any point it was an actual attempt to end his life or was all of it just to get the police's attention shifted to something different? Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.